0: Both, and one thing that I remember hearing a lot: uh, jobs, unemployment rates were up, and all that other kind of stuff. And uh, one thing I remember hearing—perhaps you heard it as well—but I heard uh, from various sources saying, "Well, this is just the new normal. You just have to get used to it." Companies had cut back their work hours, trying to avoid some of the penalties of the, uh, uh, the healthcare system that had passed. And um, and I remember hearing it in several different applications from several different people in government, of course it was the leaders, political leaders that were telling us this but they were saying, well that's just the new normal you're just gonna have to get used to it because it's just the new normal well it turned out not to be the new normal a lot of things are changing, a lot of things are turning around different policies are bringing about different results and I'm I'm not here to make a political statement, I'm not uh, here to rally you around president trump i hope you pray for him um or to to run down the previous president that we had um he's gone i'm glad of that so that's the end of my comments on him but it's the way the devil works and again i'm not faulting the people unsaved people just act like their father But what we were told was the new normal is not the new normal. But I've noticed the devil doing that with other things. I've, I've noticed that the devil tries to impress upon people that it can't be the way that they want it to be. They can't be, it can't be, things can't be the way that uh, the Bible says. And, um, and there have been certain times in my life, in the experiences I've had with uh, trusting God, and I've heard other people say it, I've heard other people preach along these lines as well, when the devil's on his way out even though we may not know he's on his way out because of the promises of the word of stand in faith that we've made or whatever the case might be a lot of times he'll try to make a deal with you he'll try to get you to settle for less supernatural results for sure he can't stop those he doesn't want us to know that but he can't stop those but he wants us to think that the new normal or what will be normal from now on is less than God's best. Well, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 30, it tells us a story about how when David was coming back from a campaign of uh, attacking Israel's enemies, before he made, was made king, just before, probably a couple of days before, he was made king of, uh, of all of Israel. He came back to his headquarters, he and his mighty men, military force, and while they were gone, the wives and children and all the stuff had been taken away by another enemy of Israel. And you remember the story about how the people were all upset, and you could well imagine they're grieving. The worst possible thoughts are coming to everybody's mind about what happened to their children, their families, and such. And it says that they, uh, one of the things that they thought about doing was, well, let's just kill David. That's not going to bring anybody back. I'm sure they're just speaking out of their grief. But it says, the Bible tells us that David was sore distressed, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. He encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? First of all, how did he do it? And secondly, why did he do it? Or maybe the, maybe the why's in the house should be reversed. He's trying to come out of the terrible situation, grievous situation that he and his followers are in. And he knows where to turn to. He knows to go to the Word. I can't imagine anything that would encourage him under those circumstances other than the promises that God's made to the guy. Is there anything else that would have encouraged him? Is there anything else that he could have taken comfort in? But the Bible says he encouraged himself in the Lord. I believe that means he goes back to the promises that God made. He goes back to the thing that he knows about God and sought for his encouragement in that way. Then he gets direction from the Lord to go out and chase after them. They do recover everybody, recover all the spoils that they took, plus the spoils of their enemies that they took as well. And it turned out to be a great time of victory. And, it was, uh, and the very next thing the Bible tells us about David was that he was made king of Israel. The promise was fulfilled from probably 13, 12, 13 years prior to that when God had told him that he would be the king of Israel. Well when the devil comes and tells us about the new normal which means you can't have you can't have it all. You can't have whatever thing that God promised or whatever the case is, he tries to convince us to take less. To take less. And I want to encourage you. Believe big. Believe big. There's some stories we're going to start here in 2 Kings chapter 3. This is where Elisha takes over for Elijah as the prophet of Israel. And, um, well, let's just go ahead and read some things and then I'll make some comments afterwards. Starting in verse 5, it said, But it came to pass when Ahab was dead, he was the wicked king that Elijah challenged on Mount Carmel. You remember how he said, "We'll We'll put the sacrifice up and call down fire from heaven. Whichever God answers by fire, he's God. Well, God came through, consumed everything that was being sacrificed, vaporized the water that was in the trenches, and, um, and the altar as well. The altar was made out of stone as well. And then he had the 450 prophets of Baal killed. I say he had them killed. He Literally, the Bible says he's the one that cut them up with swords. Well, Elijah is now passed from the scene, and Elisha is taking his place. So again, in verse 5, but it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel, and king Jehoram, that's Israel, went out of Samaria at the same time and numbered all Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the kingdoms were still divided, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me, wilt thou go up with me against him to battle? And he said, I will go up, I am as you are, my people are as your people, and my horses as thy horses. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, The way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and king of Judah, and the king of Edom, and they fetched a compass of seven days' journey. And there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed him. That just means they traveled for seven days, and now there's no water anywhere. And the king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. If they don't find water, they can't fight, they're going to have to surrender. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. That means he was his assistant until he took his place. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. What does this king know about God? What does he know about God's plan? You don't find anywhere in here that he says, I prayed and God told me to go after the enemies. He's making it up as he goes, and when the circumstances don't go his way, he says, It's God's fault. I know a lot of Christians like that, don't you? And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, You see what Elisha's attitude toward this evil king is, king of Israel. And Elisha said, as the Lord of the host lives, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. He has no desire to help this king at all. But he says, because of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, but now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass that when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him, Elisha. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, you shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, that you may drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. And this is, get the scripture, and this is but a light thing, easy thing, in other words. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord, he will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. And you shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all the wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that behold there came water by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning and the sun shone to part of the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood, and the kings are surely slain. They have smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them. But they went forward smiting the Moabites even in their own country. And they beat down the cities, and uh, on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it. And they all stopped, they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees, only in some place, however you say that, left they the stones thereof. Howbeit, the slingers went about it and smote it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took him seven hundred men that drew swords to break through even unto the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was a great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. Now, this story, I love this story, because it reveals several things. It's God showing several things that he really didn't have to. They went asking, what do we do about our water situation? They weren't seeking instructions on how to defeat the enemy. That would have been a good thing to do before they ever started marching. Seven days ago. But they go to inquire about the water, and God identifies how the water will come. And if you get a map and you look at where they were, it's impossible for water to come from anywhere. They're too far away from the coast, so it can't be water that comes from the Mediterranean Sea. There's no rivers around there, so it can't be an overflowing river. They're in the middle of nowhere, and God makes water in abundance. To flow right to where they were. Not go any further, but flow right to where they were. And nobody can explain how that was done. You know, a lot of times you'll find people that try to explain the miracles in the Bible, or explain them away, I guess I should say. And they'll come up with these uh, cockamamie ideas about, well, at the time the sun was in one place, the moon was in another place, and so it just looked like water, or just goofy things. Brother Hagin used to tell the story. I don't know if it's true or not. Brother Hagen used to tell the story about how that, uh, there was one professor that was trying to explain away the parting of the Red Sea, how that Israel went over on dry ground. And, uh, and he wound up saying something like, well, you know, that wasn't that big a deal because the water where the Israel crossed over was just about ankle deep. So they just went across and the Bible talks about it going across on dry land. Well, that'd be a bigger miracle than anything for the enemies or the armies of Egypt to drown in ankle-deep water, wouldn't it? Other times there were people that would say, well, Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Wasn't that big a deal because the loaves were bigger in those days. Yeah, and it was one little boy's lunch. There is nobody that tries to explain this one away. Nobody tries to explain this one away. This is God just saying, this is to show that I'm God. This is to show that I'm the creator of the universe. This is to show that there's nothing too hard for me. This is an easy thing to do. Well, for us, it's impossible. We, are, we can't even come up with a way to explain how it happened. But there was something else about this story that I think is important. And that is, if God just wanted the water to, to, to come into the valley, then he could have done that without the ditches. Why dig ditches? I believe it was faith on the part of the people. I believe it was a requirement. Not that necessarily they believed it. The king of Israel certainly didn't. He doesn't give any indication that he thought it was going to happen. But the digging of the ditches would be in obedience to what God said to do to contain what he sent. The water that he was sending. Just to show that he's God. He adds to it another miracle. This time he calls the sun to be just in the right place or shine just at the right way or something to make it look like it's not water in the ditches but blood. And it leads to the rout of the enemies of Israel. Now let's keep reading. I want you to see some other things that the the Bible talks about. Chapter 4. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. He's one of the people that were dedicated, had dedicated their lives to the service of the Lord. Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. You remember the story about, Je- about uh, Elisha asking what she has, and she says, all I've got is a cruise of oil. So he says in verse 3, go borrow a ve- vessel. "'Jars,' in other words, "'abroad of all thy neighbors, "'even empty vessels, bar not a few. "'And when you come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee "'and upon thy sons, and shall pour out unto all those vessels, "'and thou shalt set aside that which is full.' "'So she went from him and shut the door upon her "'and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, "'and she poured out. "'And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, "'that she said unto her son, "'Bring me yet a vessel.' "'And he said unto her, "'There is not a vessel more.' "'And the oil stayed.' "'Didn't run out till they ran out of jars.' Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. Now why did God do this? Well, he did it because he was repaying the family of somebody that had trusted him and offered his life in service for the Lord as one of the sons of the prophet. Whatever they did, I never have been able to figure out what the school of the prophets was all about. Because very few of those people, none as a matter of fact, that I'm aware of, Ever became the prophets of the land but God honored his service then it tells us about the woman that that built the little room on the edge of her house because it was the way that Elisha would come and she would have a place for him to stay she showed him kindness he asked what he what uh, he should do for her to repay her she said I don't want anything finally Gehazi who is Elisha's servant says she doesn't have any children She's older and she doesn't have any children. So Elisha prophesies that she'll have a child. He does. She does. After some period of time, the child starts growing up. He has what must, might be called heat stroke during the middle of the day and dies. Elisha winds up raising this guy from the dead, this son from the dead, by stretching himself out upon that child, and the life came back into him. But I want you to see something here. Um... When the son is dead, where is it? Where is it? Let's just start in verse 18. We'll read the whole story. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said unto his father, My head, my head. And he said to a lad, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. Then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. Go as fast as you can, unless I tell you to slow down. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel And it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. This woman is not panicking. She's not panicking. She's got confidence in Elisha. And she's not panicked because her son is dead. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. The Gehazi came near to thrust her away, and the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord has hid it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? That was one of the statements that she made when Elisha said she'd have a child the next year. Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins and take my staff in thine hand and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any man salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. Those are the exact words that Elisha said on the day that Elijah was taken up into heaven. It's in uh, chapter 2, I think. A couple of chapters before, it's, uh, I think it's the second chapter. But uh, the, the Bible records the, the account of how that Elisha knew that he was going to be with the Lord that day. And so he kept trying to tell Gehazi, or kept trying to tell Elisha, his servant, his assistant. He kept trying to tell him, they went to two different places, and he said, stay here. And both times Elisha said exactly what this woman said back to him. As my soul liveth, I will not leave thee. She's holding on to him. She knows her answer is not with her dead son. Even though Gehazi has gone to take the prophet's staff to lay on him, she sticks with him. And it tells us about Elisha going to the house. When he got to the house, Gehazi had already been there and had laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore, he went again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awaked. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He's been dead for several days now. And he went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them both and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and laid his mouth on the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes. And his hands upon this child's hands. And he stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child grew warm then he returned and walked into the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him and the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes later on in the chapter it tells us that Elisha performed another miracle where he threw uh, salt I believe it was into the pot that had been poisoned by some wild herb that somebody picked inadvertently no it's meal He cast meal, verse 41, it says he cast meal into the pot and he said pour it out for the people that they may eat and there was no harm in the pot. God heals poisonous stew. Chapter 5 tells us about Naaman, the the captain of uh, the Syrian army, how he came, he contracted leprosy and one of the slave girls that were working in his house was a little Jewish girl, and she told him about the prophet. So he comes to where Elisha is, and Elisha just sends word out the front door. Doesn't even come out to meet him, which offended Naaman greatly because he was a man of great importance. But Elisha told him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman gets mad about that. He says, why in the world am I supposed to dip in the Jordan River seven times? What does that have to do with leprosy? He starts cursing the Jordan River and saying the... Um, Rivers in Syria are a lot better and a lot cleaner than the Jordan River. Why in the world should I have to do that? But this little servant girl and the people around him convinced him, do what he said. If he told you to do something hard, you'd think that was God at work. What's it going to hurt you to do it? Well, he does it, and his leprosy is cleansed. That's an incurable disease, folks. You get leprosy, and that's it. Doctors can't do anything for you. It's an incurable disease. A leper had only one hope, and that hope was God operating through his servants. And that's what happened here. Now, we could keep going and talk about some of the other other miracles that took place with Elijah and Elisha. But I want to draw something to your attention. There's uh, significance only for history that the stories of Elijah and Elisha are in the Bible. It gives us uh, enough information so that we know the time period that they lived in. But there's nothing about the miracles that God did through these guys that, um, that altered the course of, of mankind. It wasn't a part of his redemptive work. It wouldn't have mattered as far as the, the lineage of Jesus and, and the work that He was going to be sent to do on the earth and, and finally accomplished for us, hundreds of years after these guys are operating as prophets of the, of the, uh, under Israel. There's no reason, there's no purpose. For these stories to be in there outside of just to set the timeline. But instead, it's God saying, look at what I can do. Look at what I can do. Look at what I can do. Why should we look at what he can do? Because he wants us to believe him for the best. He wants us to believe him for the impossible. He wants to do miracles to show how much he cares for his people. Turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, I'm going to start in verse 21, the gist of the, of the uh, context of the, the scriptures that we're going to read is that Israel is in bondage, Israel has rebelled against the Lord, Israel has brought on the curses of the law because of their disobedience, they're in a place where they're in bondage, they've been in bondage for a while, they're used to being slaves, now here's a picture, I want you to get this, here's the picture Of people that have given up on God caring about them, on God delivering them. They've heard all throughout their lives about what God will do for his chosen people, Israel, but their experience refutes everything about what they've heard. And so they come to the place, verse 21, it says, The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable, but this is a people robbed and spoiled. They're in bondage. This is a people that are robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivereth, for a spoil, and none saith, Restore. Do you see that? Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, is lamenting that the people are living so far below their rights and privileges as the chosen covenant people of God. They're living in prisons, they're living in holes, they're living in a way, well, with hardly anything. They've been spoiled. They've had everything taken from them. They're living in in terrible conditions uh, in comparison to what God said he'd do for his people. And nobody's asking God to restore. Isaiah is lamenting on God's behalf that nobody's asking for him to restore. How come? Well, it seems that they've accepted the new normal. It seems that they've accepted bondage as being just the way that it is now. Yeah, I know we've got stories in our history, and our forefathers had covenants with God, and big things used to happen, but I guess those days are gone now. Look at how that's how the devil tries to convince the church that healing's not for us. Well, all that passed away with the disciples last apostle when the last apostle died all that passed away that's why we don't have the miracles that the Bible talks about why would God save us a record of them then why would he include the miracles and his promises to do the miraculous for the church if it's not supposed to be for the church but so much of the church world has accepted what has become the new normal just trying to make things work on your own just make the best of it as you can Because God's changed now. Thank God he hadn't. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes. And they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey and none delivers. They are for a spoil and none saith restore. Turn with me over to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. Now certainly the latter rain is, is talking about, or the rain of God is talking about physical Israel and how the, the rain, uh, uh, the land is dependent on the rain from heaven and so forth. But these are scriptures that, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Ghost is poured out. So they've got spiritual significance. And if they have spiritual significance, then they're for us. It's not spiritual significance for Israel. It's spiritual significance for the people of God. And that's us in Jesus. The floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. Notice verse 25. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, The canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm. My great army which I sent among you. Here's that causative sense of the language that should be permissive. God didn't send it. He allowed it because of their disobedience. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. This is talking about the day of the church, folks. Spiritually, it's talking about what belongs to us. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be ashamed. I love that phrase. My people will never be ashamed. The Bible says that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross, the shame of the cross. For that which it would bring forth, which is us, the church. Those that would become sons and daughters of God. My people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days I will pour out my spirit. That's church age. Peter says so in Acts 2 when he preaches. He's saying this is what Joel was prophesying about. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So he's talking about things... That begin the church age. And he's talking about things that bring the church age to a close. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Notice restore is there again. I'll give you back the years that were taken from you. I'll give you back what the enemy through his work took from you. If God lamented that Israel was not calling for him to restore, how do you think he'd take it when his sons don't? Where his children fail to recognize that. See, all these works, all these miracles that were done through Elijah and Elisha and all the other prophets that did mighty works for God too, all those works were done by the Holy Spirit. That's the one that lives in you and me. You've got the miracle worker living and residing on the inside of you. God didn't want to do more miracles for them than he wants to do for us. Why would he? They were servants. We're sons and daughters, children of God. Not only that, but God said that he would do more miracles and more mighty things through us. Jesus told us to do the works that he did and even greater works. Which has to show God's attitude toward the miraculous. He's not wanting things to end. He's wanting wanting them to kick in high gear. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The greater one is the one that made water come in the valley. Where Elijah and where Elisha. And Jehoram were with the king of Edom. That was the work of the Holy Ghost. I don't know how he did it. But he's the one that did it. He lives in you. He lives in you. He's the standby. He lives in you. He's your helper. He's your comforter. He's your counselor. He's your advocate. He's your strengthener. And he's your standby. He's your standby. You know, this is a really poor illustration But maybe you can see where I'm coming from just a little bit. I've got a car that's got a lot more power than I'll ever need. And in situations, various situations that I've found myself on the road, just knowing that I have instant power that can get me away from anything that's going on, it's a great comfort to me. There have been times where... Things have, have gotten tight and somebody pulled out in front of us or something like that. And I've had to, to kick it. And this thing moves instantly. And it moves fast instantly. I don't know if I could go back to a gasoline-powered car. There is such a comfort level in knowing that I've got power on standby. Accessible at any moment that I need it. I don't think I could go back. Greater he is in you than he is in the world. You've got more power on standby than a car can provide. You've got more power on standby than you'll ever need. And there's no restriction. There's never been a restriction that's placed on what God will do for His people, ever. You'll notice that in some of the stories we read about the miracles that took place, these were people that had committed themselves to God or the prophet and or the prophet. And I believe that became a foundation or established a foundation for God to perform the miracles. But even James talking to people that were disobedient in the church, believers that had backslidden and believers that had fallen away, even James said, you have not because you ask not. Our heart needs to be right about what we ask. He said, you ask and have not because you want to consume it on your own lust. But he still said, you have not because you ask not. I'm looking for some restoration. Freedom and deliverance, sure, that's number one. But payback is good too. God said he'd give it back. He said, I'll restore the years that the enemy has taken from you. They deceived you into disobedience. Of course, that's not the case for us anymore. It's not a matter of just obeying, other than receiving Jesus. It's a matter of accepting who we've been made in Him. But still, the greater one is in you. Greater is He that's in you than He that's in the world. Jesus asked uh, two blind men that he passed by, and they found out who it was. And so they started calling after him. And so Jesus, when he got to the place he was going, these two blind men came in before him. And Jesus asked them a question that he never asked anybody else. He said, do you believe I'm able? Do you believe I'm able? Now, the Bible, at least to my remembrance, the Bible doesn't say anything about these guys having been blind for life or since birth or anything like that but you know if they've been blind for any period of time whatsoever you know the tendency there is to finally accept things the way they are and the devil sure wants you to think that they'll never change I believe that's why Jesus asked them these two guys were the only ones of all the people he ministered to the only ones we have record of that he asked do you believe That I'm able to do that. That's these guys. Most of the time Jesus is is working on people's faith. Like the father of the child that was possessed of the devil. And it would throw him in the water to drown him or into the fire to burn him up. He talked to him about believing. He talked to him about believing in, in context or in the sense of receiving what God had for him. But not these two blind men these two blind guys Jesus asked do you believe I'm able the devil wants to wear you down to the circumstances of life where you don't believe he's able anymore oh maybe from a religious or a theological standpoint we said yeah everything's possible with God nothing's impossible for him but we can easily enough get into the place where we're not really expecting him to do anything brother Hagen talked about a lady that came um, to one of the services campaigns that he was having in a church, just a little small church, but she asked if uh, it was okay. They had big speakers set up on the side. She asked the pastor and also Brother Hagan if it was okay if she sat right underneath those speakers because her hearing was so poor that uh, uh, that was all the only possibility for her being able to get anything out of the services. And even at that close distance, she didn't get much. And so they both agreed, well, sure, if that's what you need to do to be able to hear then that's, that's great with us. Well, Brother Hagen said that he was there for several weeks, and toward the end of the, the meetings, he saw her coming down the aisle to get in the, the healing line. And so he was there, and the pastor was helping him lay hands on people and so forth. And so she came up, and he said uh, she had uh, a cane, and it was hard for her to walk. She was an older lady, but, you know. Just kind of difficult for her to get around. So she hobbled herself up there, and Brother Hagin said, Well, I see you've come. She said, Yes, and I believe I'll be healed, too. Just lay your hands on my ears. So they did, and her, her, her ears were instantly healed. She could hear. And so she was rejoicing and started hobbling back wherever she was going to go back into the congregation. And Brother Hagin said, Wait a minute, wait a minute. What about that, that lip? Is that arthritis? She said, Yes, I've had arthritis for a long time he said well don't you want to heal from that she said no I can handle that I just need my ears healed she had accepted a new normal that wasn't God's plan and the devil wants you to do the same thing he wants you to settle for less than God's best if he can't keep you from believing at all or believing for anything he wants you to believe for less Don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. I love the fact that it says in that that, uh, um, 2 Kings account where God brought the water in from who knows where. It didn't rain. There was nothing that would have caused that kind of water in that kind of place under any circumstances that we can think of or identify. But Elisha said to the Jehoshaphat, to Jehoram, And the king of Edom, whatever his name was. Elisha said, this is but a light thing for the Lord. This is easy. This is easy. Can you think of any place in the Bible where a miracle is spoken of that God said it was hard? When Elisha said he wanted a double portion of what Elijah had, the anointing to be a prophet for Israel... Elijah said you asked for a hard thing. He didn't mean it was hard for God. He meant it was going to be hard on Elisha. The greatest miracles that we can think of, raising from the dead, parting the Red Sea, the sun and the moon standing still, the sun going backwards in Hezekiah's case. Those were light things for God. Those were easy. Well, if those things were easy, How easy is our situation? Don't settle for less than God's absolute best. David had that opportunity. He could have sat down and cried and said, well, guys, it's been a good run. But he remembered back to what God said to him. He remembered back to the promises that God had made. And he decided not to settle for less. And within a matter of a few days, what God had said to him about being king of Israel was fulfilled. It seems, I don't know if it works this way in every case, but it seems that just toward the end, just before things break through, the devil tries to take one last shot to diminish what you've been believing for. He tries to make a deal with you to accept God's less than God's best. Know how he works. And don't give an inch. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. And let's lift our hands and worship the Lord for a moment. Oh, Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the exceeding great and precious promises you've made unto us. Thank you that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. And we're standing on that word, Father. We're standing on your promises, whether they be for physical healing or for financial blessing or Whatever it is we're believing for, Father, we know that it's a light thing for you to do it. We know it's a light thing for you to move. We know it's a light thing for you to move heaven and earth on our behalf. So, Father, we make a a pact with you. We won't settle for anything less than your best. We won't settle for anything less than the way you want things and the way you've declared them in your word. We will not settle for less than your best. Ever. Satan, we set, put you on notice. We call heaven and earth to record against you. We believe the word. It shall be even as it was spoken. It shall be for us even as it was spoken. We believe the word. We believe God. So, Mr. Devil, you just pack up your little gear and get on. We'll not have less than everything God promised. We will not have less than what he's promised in Jesus' name. Can your heart agree with that? Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Have a great rest of the week.